Good morning. You know, I see Christ in your faces. Uh, I want to hear him speak through you this morning. So will you read me our scripture for today and then we'll talk about it? <laughs> let's, let's read together. Matthew 5, 3 to 9. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children. I have had the joy of living in this passage for over a month now and and really enjoying it. Today, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called children of God, God's very offspring. So dear is peace to the heart of God that people who reflect his peace making literally reflect his identity in the world. They are his divine offspring. And this week, I had a really interesting meditation on this passage because I was thinking about what am I going to end this series on the Beatitudes with? So I, I, took, I took the first two weeks to really decide where I'd go in week three here uh, to Blessed Are the Peacemakers. And so I'm reading two books this week. One is the Bible, and I'm steeped in this and reading over and over again. Look at the Greek and some commentaries. Like, there's a really interesting thing in this text. The, the word that Jesus used for peacemaker is only used twice in all of Scripture. Once where it says, in, in, and, and here's how peacemaker translates. It's like that peace thing, you know? And because it's like it, Jesus, he did that peace thing on our behalf. And so, so the, the way it kind of translates, the, the word peacemaker is they, they're known for doing that peace thing where they go. I kind of like that. It's active. It's visible in lives. So anyway, this week I'm reading that. And then somebody refers me to this book called The Terminal List by a debut author named Jack Carr. Does anybody like the page-turner novels like Tom Clancy and The Lee Child and those kind of books? Okay, I read those constantly. That, I use that to balance my serious literature, and I've find that in order to not get depressed, I have to read about twice as much of the page turners as I do the serious stuff, okay? So anyway, I'm reading this book this week, The Terminalist. Here's the story. This guy is a Navy SEAL, and he and his troops have been infected with something that gives brain tumors. And some people are in a conspiracy in the military, and they set him up and let the Taliban in Afghanistan know that he is coming with his troops and allow them to be overrun and slaughtered. And this guy survives and makes it back to the United States, having lost all but one of his soldiers. He gets back here, and they chase down the other soldier and kill him. They're after him. They kill his wife, who is pregnant, and their daughter. So blessed are the peacemakers. And then I got Jack Carr on the other hand here. Unfortunately, amidst all the violence and vengeance of this book, The Terminal List, it's a powerful read. And here's what makes it so powerful. There's something in the human heart that easily turns to vengeance. We have a sense of quid pro quo. We have a primal sense of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? And our first reaction when we're hurt, when we're angry, when we're lost, when we're cut off, is for those emotions to come up. And a lot of us have got some of that pent up inside of us. And so, for instance, uh, we read a book like this, and there's something slightly therapeutic about it in that we can relate to that kind of anger, and we can relate to the urge to do things vengeantly. It's just absolutely 
natural. And it makes good thriller reading. It really does. Great books. It just makes a world that sucks. Right? So you going there is our our lower spirits, our, our lesser angels as human beings. We we're looking for something above and beyond us that, that comes to us in the way of the divine and transforms us, and that that is peace. Um, as I neared the end of this book, I realized how powerful that urge for vengeance is. And I don't know if you've ever done that when you're reading books like this and you get caught up and are almost feeling the person's pathos, their, their emotion to want to avenge, or you think of a place where you were hurt one time in the past and you would have liked to have said that difficult thing or, you know, even worse, maybe shove somebody, punch somebody like that in, in retribution for something. So peacemakers are not natural. They're born of God. They, they come from heaven. And the great peacemakers we've seen on this earth are otherworldly. Martin Luther King Jr., Mahatma Gandhi, you, you, you know, Mother Teresa, you see people like this, so you know that it's possible to be one of these, these peacemakers. God, God makes them, and this is important to him. But we don't access that very easily. We're easily seduced by reading the terminal list and having that become our Bible. Honest to goodness, right? And so the scripture, again, calls us back to a starting place. And I think this is really important to think about peace and peacemaking. I want to really break this down today because, folks, our culture's on fire. I lived through the 60s. We're probably not as terminal and, or, or turmoil and revolutionary as the 60s. I mean, that was just total topsy-turvy, upside-down, generation against generation. Uh, I mean, it was, a, it was a really tumultuous time. We were in an unpopular war. But we're in a place like unto that again, where our, where our culture's on fire. People are incinerating each other with their words, with their actions, with their polarization, and with the alienation that casts on individuals that become the victims of somebody else's viewpoint. Um, and God help us all if we don't determine to become peacemakers on his behalf. God needs you today. We need peacemakers. And I, I'm appealing to you from the bottom of my heart. And I want to share some thoughts on peacemaking. Here's what we tend to do as religious people. It's, this is what's really cool. See, we tend to believe in God and these high ideals, and then we shape God in our own image, and we sentimentalize things like Scripture. And so it's, it's really cool to say, peace on earth, or, hey, blessed are the peacemakers, and you go, pitter, 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 pitter. Okay, and then I go, and then I look and say, what is a peacemaker, Randy? Duh. How would you make peace, Randy? Duh. You know, and I feel like the dumb jock, where the, where the lineman is going to go in and play quarterback for the coach because all the quarterbacks are hurt. And the coach says, son, can you pass this ball? And he said, I don't even know if I can swallow it, coach. Um, okay. um, anyway, um, <clears throat> thank you, thank you. It's good to, good to be here today. Second show, all new material. But, okay, but we, we tend to sentimentalize things. And so we have this thing of, blessed are the peacemakers, but what the fat is a peacemaker? How do we break that down? How do we become one? Or do we just sit down and wait to, to see if we become the next Mother Teresa by accident? I read her biography and I suddenly grew a wimple over my head and I run around and rescue people. It, it doesn't work that way. God works through the unique person he's made you to be and is prepared to make you a peacemaker in your context, through your personality, through unique style in the world. And there are numerous ways of peacemaking. 
And what I want to do is try to break it down a little bit this morning so that we don't have this esoteric peacemaking word that makes us all feel bippity-bippity, but we don't do anything about it. So hopefully I can give some categories of peacemaking, and we'll take a look at this. And I'd love to be in dialogue with some of you about how I feel this. And we're going to talk about divine peace, civility, anticipatory peacemaking, frontline peacemaking, and restorative peacemaking. These are categories that I've kind of combined together from numerous readings. So it's my list, and knowing that this Roland's list is probably incomplete and thoughtless, but this will give us a start, okay? First and foremost, we have to experience divine peace. We have a lot of people who have had quote-unquote religious conversions, gone to church, but have never done the hard spiritual work to bring God into the conflicted, ill-at-ease places in our own lives. And this is where the Holy Spirit wants to come. And the first act of peacemaking is always allowing God to make peace inside of me. Make peace inside of you. Scripture promises us that the peace of God that passes understanding will guard our hearts and minds. We can bear up to anything in Christ Jesus. That peace is so powerful. But it needs to be shaped in us. And you and I can find peace in our own spirits by spending time with God and seeing the places where we're conflicted. And I find uh, several things along this way for me for deployments. I have to release my just claims against other people. That is so hard for me to do. If somebody's gone wrong and I observe it, I'm on an enneagram and I'm a number eight, you know, and that's the person who really bristles at injustices. I see an injustice and I want to pay back on it, right, instead of redeeming it and, and, and going that way. So we need to release our just claims that others ought to be punished for what they've done. And we need to release our strong opinions at least enough to let down our wall and hear other people. I cannot believe what is going on in our culture right now in terms of the political clash. I really can't. And I'm so ashamed of us. I'm just honestly ashamed of our culture right now. I'm ashamed of myself in the midst of that. But we've got people just running around slaughtering each other over their points of view. We've I've got a friend that has a men's ministry here in Seattle. We've had, in, in that ministry, we've had two small groups explode because of where people stood in their politics. And we've actually had small groups in the Christian circles going, we want all the Republicans out. We want all the Democrats out. It's not even a philosophy. It's a, it's a political party. It's so cheap and lowly compared to the gospel. It's just, it's just filthy. But people are dividing on this stuff. And our, our culture is ripped. And we need to find the places in ourselves where we're not at peace and we somehow need to identify with something and fight against the perceived enemy that's the person who thinks differently than we do. It's, that's, that, folks, is what we're doing is really sick. And we need to accept God's eternal and sovereign care over us and release our need to self-determine and to self-protect. And we need to move from our good to common good. And this is what divine peace starts as. And then it emerges at that point as civility. And civility is the ability to bear with people who have different points of view, to be able to contain great disparity in a room. We do, we do our very best work when we have people who are not the same in their thinking, and we chip away and chip away until we come up with best solutions. That's how our whole system was built, was so that people with opposite views would come together, work things out, and hash it with each other. Not be in a battle where one side suffers for eight years, then the other side suffers for eight years. 
and boy, just some of the stuff I'm seeing going on and seeing groups of friends split up over this stuff and not hang with each other anymore because of this stuff, it breaks my heart. Um, now, civility is accepting and honoring diversity and actively seeking common ground. That means that we enter into conversations in a different level than we have before. Rather than bombing people with, this is who I'm for and this is why I believe this and da-da-da and here's my final word on immigration or whatever the issue is, it's like, why don't you tell me where you're at? I'll listen. Why don't we see where the common points are? Why don't we practice some civility? We want to build a society that's good. I don't know if you ever read the Lincoln biography that was called A Team of Rivals. Did anybody read that? It's a really, really, really good book. And basically, Abraham Lincoln filled his cabinet with people he deeply disagreed with. He knew we were divided over slavery, that, that we were, the culture was on fire back then too, and he felt the need to have everybody represented even inside his own cabinet. And so, man, he built a team of rivals. That's how teams of people should be. That's how friends should be. We should be actively hanging out with people that are from different cultures, people that are the opposite of us in their points of view. I was uh, voting this week with somebody who holds opinions that are from a different political viewpoint than me, and I was trapped in a boat going around a large lake, and I just said, talk to me. I didn't have any choice. And I decided if I'd listen, I'd learn something, and I, and I, I did. It, it, it actually works. That's, that's what makes me so sad, is that we have peacemaking and civility within us if we'll just use it. And God's there to help us pull that off, to ask others about their passions, their frustrations, why they've come to believe what they believe, and refuse to let politics, moral issues, social issues divide us from others, particularly when it's long-time friendships on the line. When someone says, I hate liberals, then ask and listen why they hate them. And if you're a liberal, take notes as to why, you're, why you make people uncomfortable, vice versa with conservatives. Look for unifying narratives. It's, it's, I think I shared this here before, but you guys helped me get a grant with the Lilly Foundation. I spent four months in Central America, traveling around all by myself for four months. It was, it's, I still remember that sabbatical. It was an awesome trip. But during that time, I kept talking to Central Americans, business people, clergy, educators. And you know what they say? They say, why do you guys always fight in each other in America over your politics? You, Every president in the United States is the same. You guys haven't changed for 200 years. It doesn't matter who your president is. You're exactly the same to the world. What, what, why is it a big deal to you? It's, it's the same. And, and then my friend from El Salvador explains to me, and I'm, I think I shared this before, Eliberto says, Randy, here's what is, we have six-year presidencies. Here's what it's like every six years. The National Liberation Front, the Marxist Party, wins the presidency, moves the nation into a Marxist economy, Marxist philosophy, socialism, in action. Then the other presidents that run for office in El Salvador are what we would call conservative or almost fascist um, democracies. And so what happens is every six years, they flip from being totally democratic to totally Marxist. Now there's a difference. You try dealing with that. You know, you buy 100 acres of property and then um, they reapportion the land under a new president, and you lost all your property. How does that feel? But people live with that and somehow make it through. They, we just don't have as much division as we think we do. We're, we're in splitting hairs in some ways. And a more active form of uh, peacemaking. 
comes out of these conversations we have with people where we practice civility and we begin to hear some of the pressure points around the world that we could be paying attention to, like the homeless crisis in Seattle. My neighborhood, Ballard, I guess, has quadrupled in homelessness uh, in the last few years. Um, and this is what I call anticipatory peacemaking. And here's how this works. It's kind of it's cool. It thinks upstream to the sources of things that vandalize peace in our culture. Here's a really cool anticipatory justice thing or anticipatory uh, deal that I, that I saw this week and was thinking about. Um, some schools in the southern part of our state have looked at the homeless crisis, and they're seeing kids that are now, we've, we've, we've had homelessness in its current iteration for long enough that some kids that were born living in cars are now in high school. And hundreds and hundreds are in elementary school. And we've got elementary and middle schools in parts of our state having actually homeless coordinators in their buildings. And they have a center where kids who are homeless can come in, they can get fed, they can get emotional support, they can get medical attention, uh, they can get clothing out of a clothing bank, they can get referral services, and they have actually these instructional assistant people who deal specifically with the population of homeless kids. And what they found is these homeless kids over time uh, tend to be homeless in the future, they tend to be potentially violent because the streets are mean and potentially criminal because if you don't have sources of income, you don't have an address, an idea, you can't even get social services money because you don't have a, an address when you're homeless, right? So these people have nothing. And what these instructors have done is jump in next to these kids and intervene to try to pull them out of this situation. And so it's anticipatory peacemaking, creating a situation where these kids can live at peace. And there's some just touching stories. There's a little boy who can't sleep at night because he's afraid of the noises and the shouting outside when he sleeps in a car. And he comes into this resource room every morning, goes to his favorite teddy bear. His teacher greets him, gives him a little snack, and he hugs the teddy bear to himself and lays down on the floor and falls asleep. And they move him into the classroom a couple of hours into the day because poor thing didn't sleep all night. Well, this kind of anticipatory peacekeeping is beautiful. And there's all kinds of things we can do and use our gifts for that. And you're not even putting yourselves in harm's way. We aren't to do that and help with those sorts of things. And every school building in our city struggles with the issue of homelessness. So then we move to an, uh, another level of peacemaking as we break this down. I think this is more challenging, and that would be frontline peacemaking, where you're actually in the places where you're in harm's way and making a difference. Um, I had a, a young friend who's an architect. Her name was Kathy. Um, and Kathy's from Montana. She came here after college and set up shop as an architect uh, at Huntley Architecture downtown. And she developed a passion uh, as she kept driving by New Horizons Ministry to street kids and seeing street kids and street prostitutes. And um, she basically went in, took the training, volunteered, and she became a uh, street young woman on the street support person. And every Friday and Saturday night, she went out, found out where these kids were walking in the streets, and just went up and walked with them and talked to them in hopes that, well, if I keep this girl busy for an hour, she won't get picked up by somebody. If I walk down the street with this girl, she won't get hassled and taken in by a pimp. And Kathy just gave herself to be in that dangerous place. She had people in cars point guns at her and threaten her. Sometimes she'd ask somebody, what do you think you're doing? This, this girl's 12-year-old, you're picking up. And 
She was at risk, but she was frontline peacemaking. And people do this, and unfortunately, these are the people you often hear about because they get shot or beat up or something. It can be costly to peacemake, and I think this direct, direct line, frontline peacekeeping, is a real high calling, and not all of us will be called to it. But I think we're all called to support the people who do that as actively as we can. Okay? Um, like Operation Night Watch here in Seattle keeps our streets a whole lot safer and people that are at risk a whole lot more protected. My old friend Rick Reynolds drives around all night in a van and looks after people. Okay? So the, these are really, really big things, and the stories that come back from these people are pretty incredible. A friend of mine was on Young Life staff in San Diego, California, and uh, he was working in these profitable, uh, rich community high schools, and he got moved more to the inner city. And Young Life was a struggle there, and he saw something he'd never seen before, and that was the Hispanic gangs in, in uh, the San Diego County area. And he just, he just couldn't bear it. And so he went to Young Life and said, I, I, I want to be Young Life leader of the gangs. Take me out of the school, support me. I just I want to go be with the gangs. And he's telling me stories about this kid, Froggy, that he met, who he actually took a hot gun away from Froggy. Frog, Froggy had discharged the gun at somebody, and the barrel was too hot to hold. And he got the kid to give him this gun. And Froggy later became a Christian, and I believe uh, went on Young Life staff. From Froggy with the gun to probably Freddy, that everybody loved and respected, and maybe didn't even know his background. But he went from a dangerous havoc maker into the hands of a peacemaker who transformed his life. And now he's doing the same thing and passing that on. And he's been doing that 20, 30 years. Another level is restorative peacekeeping. I'll just hit this really quickly. You all know about Desmond Tutu and the Commission for Truth and Reconciliation in South Africa, where everybody who did anything wrong is safe to come and confess their sin, like we ought to be able to do in church, and to say, I'm sorry, and then to be forgiven and socially reconciled with everybody. And these restorative things are really powerful. Um, I have a, a friend uh, named uh, Trevor Morrow. In fact, Nancy and Rachel just stayed with him a couple of times. Uh, his son Peter was an intern of mine at a, at a previous church. Remember a tall Peter with the blonde hair, Aslan? Yeah. So anyway, Trevor set up an, a, a thing in, in Dublin, Ireland called the Nexus Center. And it was a Y-shaped retreat center. And what he did is he put 100 kids from Belfast that were Northern Catholics or, or Northern Protestants with 100 Southern Catholics in a retreat center. 200 kids whose families had been at war with each other for generations and generations for over 100 years, 150 years, and brought them together in this camp. And as the week went on, they had a room exchange. And the, the kids got wove in by their choice from their common meeting time. And the North and the South kids got redistributed across the camp during the course of a week or two week camp session, where all of a sudden now you've got the Protestants and Catholics, North and South, a lifetime of enmity, actually sharing bunks in the same room and becoming lifetime friends. Guess what's happened to the violence in Northern Ireland? It's way down. Trevor Morrow had many death threats from people in the Orange Party and people that you don't want to mess with, but he refused to back down because he felt called to be a peacemaker. And he's 70 years old now, and other people have taken over that project, 
and they're still finding different pockets of hatred and animosity in the culture and putting people together for the purpose of nexus means connecting and getting to know each other's stories and developing a new common story, okay? So I just see here Jesus begging us to become peacemakers. The reason I've broken this down some is I, I kind of want us to see there are different ways. I hope, maybe I haven't done what I hope to do this morning, but what I'm hoping to have done is that if you've heard Blessed of the Peacemakers and it kind of expire, inspires you, but you don't know what to do about it, by breaking this down, there are a number of things that you can celebrate, that you can pray for, and going through the levers from civility to restorative, there's a place for every single person here, and you're desperately needed as a peacemaker. And on the other side of that, if you have unintentionally, like a lot of my Christian brothers and sisters, become an agitator and a polarizer in this whole political thing, please consider the role of a peacemaker. It is a higher calling. It's a difficult calling, but it's a higher calling. It's a Jesus calling, not our base instincts calling. As we prepare to come to the table this morning, we're going to pray a prayer of St. Francis aloud together, and then we'll come to the table. So let's read St. Francis' shield together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Lord, equip me and grant me the courage and guide me to the specific place where I may bring your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.